The John Morris Show, episode 61. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... You are now listening to The John Morris Show. My name is John Morris, Army veteran turned freelance web developer. And each week I bring you a fresh look into the latest news, advice, and next steps for the self-made web designer and developer to help you reach your dream of coding for a living faster. Thanks for giving me some of your time today. Now, let the episode begin. Today's episode is brought to you by the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on Udemy.com, where you can learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, mobile apps, and more inside one convenient course so you can shortcut the time it takes to start earning your full-time income as a web developer. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive 85% discount on the course by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. That's johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show. I am John Morris from johnmorrisonline.com. Got a good show for you today. Got several different things that we're going to go through. As always, I go through a little bit of news, things that I see going on that I think are important trends maybe to watch. And the one I want to talk about today is an article I read over on Medium called The Genius of WordPress and why it's doomed. And it talks a little bit about static site generators, which you may have heard of, and why they may be getting bigger and eating into some of the market share of WordPress. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I also have in the mindset section, going to talk about being negative. Uh, I think I've done this a little bit before, but uh, I want to get into this just a little bit more because I'm still seeing a lot of this uh, mentality that everything always has to be positive. And I wonder, especially want to approach this from a marketing angle and selling yourself and selling the things that you ultimately create. Because if you don't know, you're eventually going to have to do that at some point, whether it's in an interview for a freelance client or whether you build some sort of app that you're going to try and get people to uh, install or download or whatever, you're going to have to sell it. So knowing how to do that and using negativity in a positive way. <laughs> in our tech section, then, we'll get into the golden ratio and using it in your design. So if you've never heard of that, that'll be interesting for you. Also, in the freelance section, begging for money. Uh, something I get accused of quite a bit. And so we're going to talk about that. And then, as always, we have our Q&A of the week. Now, before I dive into all that, first a couple things. I want to talk in this opening, I want to talk a little bit about YouTube because I've been getting a lot asked a lot about YouTube. So I'm going to talk about some things there. But if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. You can do that at johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. You subscribing and listening there and giving reviews and feedback helps me a ton with discovery and, and getting new people to find the show. So if you're on an Apple device, if you wouldn't mind hopping over to iTunes, subscribing to the show, maybe even giving me a review over there, I'd certainly appreciate that. Of course, if you're on Android, you can always get me at johnmorrisonline.com soundcloud, 
and as always on YouTube at johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. All right, so let's talk about YouTube. Now, before I get into some of what I want to go through, let, let me cover why I feel like I can talk about YouTube and give you some pointers on YouTube. Because, you know, not everybody out there knows a thing or two about YouTube, but I think that I've consistently built a channel to where I could talk a little bit about some of the things that I've learned over the years. And as I think I've mentioned, I actually run two other podcasts, one in the sports and one that's in politics. And I've just very recently started those with some uh, family members of mine, and I've been taking the same approach and and applying that over there and really uh, consistently building those channels. And a lot of the things that I'm doing over here, they work over there, and they work with an absolutely brand new channel. And that's probably the biggest thing that people struggle with is starting from scratch. Once you start getting some views, then you can kind of figure things out. But Getting going is usually the hardest part, and the things that I've learned have allowed me to to be able to translate that and and get going from scratch. So let's talk a little bit why I think I can talk about this. One, you know, this is this channel that you're listening to now. Uh, in total, Lifetime has 2.2 million views, and now when you think about YouTube channels that the popular ones out there, you're like, well those people's one video might get a couple million views. And that's true. And by no means am I saying I'm on par with those people. However, this is 2.2 million views of coding tutorials, some of which are an hour and two hours, hour to two hours long. And it's it's a much more business-focused type channel. Now, if you forget the comedy channels for just a second and you go out there and you look at purely business focused channels uh and and maybe even some tech channels and so forth you know they're they're generally quite a bit smaller and so 2.2 million views in in a really what is a a more obscure niche uh isn't nothing isn't anything to sneeze at and i i know a lot of people in online marketing who have tried using youtube and have found it difficult for their businesses I've been able to kind of figure it out. Now, I also currently am getting about 120,000 views per month of my videos, which tripled last year from about 39,000. And that tripled from the year before from about 13,000. So just two years ago, I was getting about 13,000 views a month. And the last two years, I've grown that to 120,000 a month. And I'm looking to get over two to three hundred thousand a month by the end of this year, and I, I, I'm fairly confident that I can do that. So that's another thing that's led to 1,372 subscribers on my channel a month, and probably the biggest thing is that's turned into 2,000 new email subscribers to my mailing list each and every month, and that's when we start to translate this in to business a little bit because. Anybody who's in online business or any business in general knows that the lifeblood of any business is subscribers. And so getting 2,000 new email subscribers a month uh, is nothing to sneeze at. Again, there's plenty of people out there getting a bunch more, but uh, you know that's, <laughs> that's still fairly significant, I would say. So 
those are some of the reasons why I think I can talk about it. I'm not trying to tell you that to to brag or boast or anything like that. I just I do think that I have learned some things and and want to, you know, show that maybe I do know a little bit what I'm talking about. All right. So with that out of the way, what are some of the I was actually asked this in email and I've been asked this several times by people who say, "Well, I want to start a YouTube channel. How do I get views like you're getting on your videos?" And so I'm going to give you what I'm going to start doing is these openings here. I'm going to kind of turn this into a YouTube corner and talking about YouTube specifically in this opening. So each episode, I'm going to go into more and more depth with this. But I want to start off in this first time talking about this to give you the broad things that I think about when when it comes to my YouTube channel. So the first one is the niche that you're in. It's absolutely important that you find a good niche. And I've talked about this with freelancing. I've talked about this all sorts of things. But it's because it is so important. It's the thing that everybody wants to skip. But you absolutely have to do it. And when I say find a good niche, what I mean by good is one where, you know, there's there's views to be had. It's something that people are interested in. It's a It's a topic that people will listen to and be interested in. To be honest, on YouTube, a tech podcast or a tech channel is maybe a little less of a good niche in that particular sense because while there's, you know, still a lot of people looking for coding tutorials, it's not near as many as people that are interested in say sports or politics or comedy, etc. So, you know, in that sense, maybe it's not as good of a niche, but it's still a, it's still sizable enough that there's views to be had. It also needs to be something that you enjoy. Okay, it has to be something that you like doing and like talking about. Because I promise you, there will be days where you don't want to get on and do the podcast. You just don't feel good. You're not in a good mood. And if you try and talk about something you're not interested in, you don't like, it's it's not going to go very well. So it has to be something that you're you you love to do you're you're highly highly interested in already. And then the third thing is needs to be something that you're good at. You need to have some sort of credibility in talking about what you're talking about. So you know, for example, in this one, I've been a freelancer for a number of years. I've been a full-time coder for a number of years. I have, you know, I've worked completely on the internet at home for the last 6 years. So there's there's elements of credibility there, however you may view those. In the sports podcast that I run, I actually have, you know, brought in somebody who was a former coach for 12 seasons, so that adds some credibility to the show. I also played a lot of football. I was a walk-on at the University of Nebraska, so I have some sense, uh, a, a little bit of credibility, but, you know, he really adds the element of credibility to that. For the political one, I have a guy who, you know, again, I myself, I was in the military for 11 years. So it gives me some some things to talk about in that sense. I also brought on a guy who was in the military as well, was a soldier of the year at the division level, which is a fairly significant accomplishment, and then actually conscientiously objected to the Iraq war and left the military, was discharged from the military, uh, and kind of turned into what he calls a peace activist and so forth. So whether you agree with that politically or not, it's an interesting story and does lend some credibility in terms of the things that we talk about on there. So you got to have something that you're good at, something where you have elements of credibility that you can talk about, which is 
again, why I even talked about the credibility elements with YouTube before I started this. All right, so find a good niche. The second is the one I think is obvious. You have to create good content. Now, the, the caveat I would have here is that when you listen to other people, they tend to they tend to almost scare you a bit in terms of the quality that your content has to have. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to have good content, but you don't need to produce Hollywood-level production quality uh, in order to be successful. Really, you just need to have an opinion or an, a perspective that has some value to it, and most importantly, be able to articulate that. In whatever way it is, if it's just talking like this, I mean, look at my videos. It's just me on here talking with a, a poster screen. Could it be better with video and all that? Sure, it, it could. But I still get lots of people who listen, lots of people who get value, and the production quality isn't necessarily something that goes clear, way over the top. I do focus on trying to make the audio quality as good as possible, but you don't have to scare yourself into thinking that you need to be a Hollywood producer in order to, to get a following on YouTube. You don't. You need to have a perspective, something to articulate or some sort of value to bring, and you need to be able to articulate it well. Those are really the key things in whatever fashion, whether it's words, whether it's you're good at putting together you know, montages or however that is, however that works for you, you need to be able to articulate it. And then the last thing, which I don't think uh, I rarely hear people talk about, is you need to promote like a madman. You really do. You will spend more time promoting your show than creating your show. You'll invest more into promoting it than creating it. Now, I have grown this, but as of this time, I spend about $500 a month just promoting this show on YouTube, Facebook, and other places. So I invest quite a bit into it monetarily. Now, I started just spending $50 a month. But I've grown that over time because I've seen the results. And so this is when we talk about getting started. The, the best thing that you can do for yourself, if you're just starting a YouTube channel and you want to get views, is to, to create a budget for yourself that you're going to spend on advertising your content. So it could be 20 bucks a month. It could be 50 bucks a month. It could be 100 bucks a month. Whatever it is, even as little as $30 a month, you'd be surprised the effect it can have on your channel. Because running ads on YouTube for content videos is really, really cheap. So $30 a month can get you quite a bit. So you, you need to be willing to do that and be willing to promote like a madman in order to get your channel out there. All right, so those are some of the core things that I recommend. Find a good niche, create good content, and then promote like a madman. Now, as I said in future episodes, I'll dive more into this and some of the specifics of the things that I think about when creating my videos and so forth. So if you're interested in starting a YouTube channel, then you'll definitely want to stay and pay attention to those. All right, coming up in the next segment, we're going to get into the genius of WordPress and why it's doomed. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Ebates, where you can earn cash back on your online purchases from major retailers like Amazon, eBay, Walmart.com, and more. John Morris Show listeners can get your free account 
by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash ebates. Welcome back to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. In this segment, I want to go through this article that I read over on Medium, and I'll link to this article over on the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 61. The name of the article is The Genius of WordPress and Why It's Doomed. And so the general idea of the article is that WordPress is, the way it's built is genius in a sense. Now, (laughs) I know there's immediately developers out there going, you know, they're (laughs) shaking their fists at the screen. But that general idea, maybe you want to think of it as Joomla or Drupal, but the idea of the CMS and the, the, the ability to plug in new functionality in the theming system and just the entire way that it works is a uh, it's a good way of putting things together right uh, and that you know it's it's kind of proven itself over the years with WordPress powering 25% of all sites on the internet has a 59% market share of all content management systems you know there's more than 40,000 themes and at least 10,000 uh, or hundreds of thousands of WordPress developers and tons and tons of plugins. Uh, they recently raised, looks like 41, or no, that was WP Engine raised 41 million. Automatic uh, has o- raised over 317 million and has a $1 billion valuation. So when you look at all the business side and aspects of it and so forth, it's been very, very successful. However, he goes into what he calls an unlikely competitor. And when I say he, I mean Jason Goins. And again, I'll link to this over on the show notes page. But he talks about an unlikely competitor and he references GitHub pages. And, you know, if you're familiar with GitHub pages, that might elicit a chuckle from you. But his point is that GitHub pages is intrinsically different and he argues better than WordPress because WordPress's success is uh, is also its biggest downfall. And that is the fact that it's dynamic. And in, in opposition to that, GitHub Pages is what's called a static site generator. And so he kind of lays this out a little bit about... Uh, well, I'll go through uh, the analogy that he uses here because uh, I think it's a good one. And actually, this uh, analogy is um, from David Walsh. And so here, here's the way he kind of describes the difference. So he says, so try to imagine for a second that the only way for people to know what's happening in the world is to go to the nearby news kiosk and ask to lead the latest, latest news. It's silly, but for the analogy's sake, it makes sense. So the attendant at the kiosk has no way of knowing what the latest news is. So he passes the request on to a back room full of telephone operators. So you picture a big telephone switchboard room in the 1950s. When an operator becomes available, they take the request and phone a long list of news agencies and ask for the latest news and then write the results as bullet points on a piece of paper. The operator will then pass his rough notes onto a scribbler who will write the final copy to a nice sheet of paper 
arrange them in a certain layout, and add a few bits and pieces such as the kiosk branding and contact information. Finally, the attendant takes the finished paper and serves it to the happy customer. And the entire process will then be repeated for every person that arrives at the kiosk. And that is essentially how a dynamic website works. When a visitor gets to a website, the kiosk, expecting the latest content, the news, a server-side script, the operators, will query one or multiple databases, which are the news agencies, to get the content. Pass the results to a template engine, the scribbler, who will format and arrange everything properly and generate an HTML file, the finished newspaper, for the user to consume. And you have to do this every single time a request is generated. Now you compare that to static a static site, and essentially what it does is it shifts the heavy load from the moment the visitor requests the content to the moment the content actually changes. So if we go back to the, the same analogy, instead of whenever someone shows up at the kiosk and requests the latest news, we go through that entire process. Instead, whenever the news changes, we essentially push it the other way to create a static file. And now you have or a static newspaper, essentially, and you have a stack of them waiting. So whenever someone comes up and requests the latest news, you simply hand them the piece of paper. You don't have to go through the request all over again. And so that is kind of the difference between a, a dynamic CSS in terms of an analogy and a static site generator. The static site generator just by default is going to run faster because it's not going having to go through the entire request process uh, as the as the user or, or the visitor is at the site requesting that information. It's already there waiting. Now, immediately what people think of is caching and so forth, and that does help, but it, it, it's in some ways it's almost never going to be as fast as something that is built to be static from the start. Okay, so that's that's in a nutshell his argument that in in certain scenarios and a lot of scenarios that over time a static site generator is going to be able to outcompete a, a a CMS like WordPress because speed is so important that and it can just it can work that much faster than a, a dynamic CMS and there's a lot less to deal with because you're dealing with static files in terms of security and so forth because there's not a ton that you can do. There are things, but there's not a ton that you can do when you're not running all those requests and so forth. And so, uh, again, that's the basic argument. Now, I have a certain perspective on this because, you know, I work every day in WordPress. That's what I do. WordPress is kind of the the system that I work on top of. And so I think it would be easy for me to just discount this because it goes against what I do, right? It'd be easy for me to write it off because it's a threat to me. But I actually don't I don't I don't necessarily completely disagree with this. Because I I even you know with the the clients that I work with, I have pushed them in certain scenarios to use static sites, right? They, they have said they wanted to use WordPress and I, they've described the project to me and I've said, 
There's really no reason to use WordPress here. There's nothing that WordPress gives you as an advantage. And I've had to kind of battle back and forth a little bit because they're people who are, you know, really sold on WordPress, they're WordPress people and they're used to work using it. And you know, I've kind of kind of pushed them and and had to battle back and forth to to show them that, you know, WordPress isn't the right solution for every scenario. And the the examples I think of primarily are something like uh, a landing page for maybe an opt-in page or a sales page or any sort of content or page where it's not going to change that much. If you think about most of the blog posts that, you know, I can think about blog posts I wrote three or four years ago on my blog. I haven't changed them for three or four years. So they're not something that's changing constantly. I've changed my theme and my design, but even with a, a, a static site generator, you could still do that. So what's the what's the value of having that page and all those requests happening every single time that, that page is requested? What's the value there? There may not be value there, right? And so there are scenarios where having a static setup is is the best way to go. As a matter of fact, my hire me page on my site right now is not in WordPress. It's a static page that I built. I built several different landing pages and sales pages for one of my big big clients and and pushed them that way because it just speed is so important right now. It's a lot easier to manage and that stuff literally doesn't change for years at a time. So again, what's the value of having it be dynamic? Now they go into talking about how blogging could be done with these static site generation generators, which is, I mean, that would be cool. Talk about how, you know, basically every new blog post would be uh, like a file in your repository and the, the generator would know how to reference it and so forth. And if you wanted to update it, you just, you know, you'd do a new commit to that uh, file and change it and then it would show up different on the site or whatever. So... I can see the point. Now, as they mentioned, there's a lot of work to go in in terms of making this user-friendly so that the average person can use it. And, you know, he talks about, um, you know, bringing in content editors and different editors that you could use to do this and so forth. Um, But looking at it, I think it's entirely possible that you could have a setup where someone is using something like GitHub Pages or one of the other ones that are out there and they're they're essentially interacting back and forth with a repository but they don't even really know it because they're inside of an editor that does all of that stuff for them that to me that seems entirely possible i don't i, I don't necessarily see why that can't happen where i disagree with this is i don't see it as the end of wordpress because there's always going to be, in my mind, a. There's going to be a need for having something be dynamic. So again, I think about my own site. There are parts of it that have to be dynamic that really couldn't be done if they weren't dynamic. And even if you think, well, you could use JavaScript 
there's parts of it that I don't see that JavaScript could do very well. And JavaScript isn't meant to do necessarily all of those things. That's sometimes can be a bad one size fits all solution to try and do things to to do things that really should be done by a server side script. So I don't think it's the downfall of WordPress necessarily, but I do think it could be uh, a new player in in the entire game and take up its share of the internet. Now, what that share will be, who knows? But and you know, with PHP new P, PHP seven coming out with this, uh, supposed to have the big speed improvements and so forth, you know, maybe it could be less of an issue. But I do think that it's something to look at as a developer, looking at these static site generators, looking at GitHub pages and 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 seeing paying attention to it and seeing where it goes um, because I don't think the base idea is all that off. There are plenty of sites out there that could be built that don't need WordPress. They don't need things to be dynamic, right? So, and there's ways that you could use the site, the static site generators and still have parts of it be dynamic. So for example, you could think of maybe forms forms that need to be processed. Well, you could have a form in there, but then it posts to, you know, it, it's run by some other system. You know, I think of uh, Wufoo forms, right? You could use that, or there could be other things out there that you could use to, to get around these things to keep your site static and fast, but still be able to add certain dynamic elements where necessary. So I thought this was an interesting article. I'll let you go go ahead and read through it. There's also... I'll link to uh, another article, the one I referenced, but from davidwalsh.name. It's actually not by David Walsh. It's Eduardo Bucas. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad, but it's called An Introduction to Static Site Generator Generators. And he really, on that particular, uh, that particular article, he really makes a good argument for the static site generator. So it's worth a read. And again, something to pay attention to something to keep your eye on that could become a major player in the future. All right, coming up next in the show, we're going to get into a little bit of mindset and talking about being negative and how this is a really powerful tool for you from a marketing perspective and and really a, I guess you could call it self-help type perspective or self-development type perspective, how negative Negativity can be a very powerful tool. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. John Morris here for the complete web developer course by Rob Percival on udemy.com. Now here's the deal with this. Do you ever get frustrated constantly searching the internet for tutorials to learn how to code? Are you worried that learning how to code is taking longer than it should? Do you just wish you could learn everything in one convenient place so you can get on with earning your living as a web developer. Well, that is exactly why Rob created the Complete Web Developer Course. Everything you need to know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, APIs, and mobile apps in one convenient course. And you know it works because Rob has over 183,000 students and the most five-star ratings of any course on Udemy. Now here's the best part. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive, and this is just for you guys only, 
an exclusive 85% discount on the course simply by visiting johnmorrisonline.com cwdc. So look, quit pulling your hair out trying to find good tutorials on the web. Do the smart thing and hit up my man Rob's complete web developer course with the slick 85% discount right now. Visit johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc and you'll be all set. Welcome back to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. All right. I want you to be negative, uh, and especially as a marketer. So what do I mean by this? Well, so many people today, and you've probably seen this, they think that being positive is the end-all, be-all. That if if you say anything negative or feel anything negative, if you're not just 100% positive all the time and always have a positive mindset, then something's wrong with you. You're not... I see this all the time where people post stuff like on Facebook and stuff and it's like kick the negative people out of your life. And there is something to be said for that. People who are constantly downing you and trying to drag you down and so forth. Absolutely. But it kind of tends to bleed over to the point where if anybody says anything negative, they're kind of immediately judged and shunned. Because they said something negative. Oh my gosh. But there's a lot of power in negativity. So let me explain. If you really look at cognitive behavioral therapy, which I experienced a lot of as a part of the Army Suicide Prevention Program. Now, I wasn't suicidal, but it was a program that there was a lot of suicides that were starting to happen in the Army after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And they you know started to really look into how to deal with this and they they called it uh master resiliency training and they they base a lot of ideas off of this uh this work but done by these two two therapists on resilience and when you break it all down what it is that it essentially is a kind of a form of cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy okay when you look, so when you look, and it works really well, actually, uh, it did a lot for me, even though, you know, at the time I wasn't suicidal, we all have problems. Um, it actually helped me out quite a bit and it's a big part of my mindset, uh, today. So, but if you look at it, both maximizing and minimizing are what they call thinking traps. So when something happens and you maximize it and make it worse than it is, they call it worst case scenario thinking, That that's a thinking trap. That's a problem. So being overly negative in that sense, if we want to use the term, is a problem. But so is minimizing. So is having something happening and you trying to make it less than what it is and downplay its negativity or its effect. Both of those are thinking traps. So yes, making things worse than they are isn't good, but downplaying real negatives is bad too. The the key isn't being positive or being negative. The key is being accurate, assessing a situation for what it is and not making it worse or better than it actually is. Now. The other part of this is 
oftentimes we can get more out of focusing on and eliminating negatives from our life than trying to gain some new positives. So as an example, have you ever quit a job that you hated or quit working for someone that you couldn't stand or that made your life miserable? I have. I've done that. Or maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship that just was really bad for you. And I'm not talking, you know, everybody when they end relationships always kind of tends to blame the other person. I'm talking about really just bad for you. And you can look back on it now, now that you're outside of the emotion of it and go, whew, that was bad. Do you remember how you felt and how much better your life was once you eliminated that negative? And when you were in it and you had that negative thing hanging over you, did it really matter the amount of good things that happened to you? Yeah, maybe it felt you felt good for a little while. But most of the time when you have some big negative in your life hanging over your head, it makes everything else difficult to feel positive about. And it kind of mutes all of the positive things that you have happen. So simply eliminating that negative, whatever it is, can oftentimes let all the positive things that you have in your life then shine. So eliminating negatives for people can often be much, much more powerful than some promise of some new benefit or or good thing that they can gain. Now, from an achievement perspective, eliminating a negative that's holding you back can also be much more powerful than just adding one more positive. Rich Sheffron talks about this in a way that I, I think is uh, I really, really like. And he talks about the difference between potential and actuality and that most people have tons and tons of potential potential. You know, we, we've, especially in like the online business world, web developers, so forth. We spend a lot of time on self-development. We spend a lot of time working on, you know, marketing and business. we spend a lot of time working on our craft, you know, building websites and getting really, really good at all of this stuff. And we have this huge, like we underestimate the potential that we have. And the reason why is we have a few very insidious constraints that are holding us back. And that no matter how much we continue to build our potential, until we eliminate those negatives, we're never going to actualize that potential. We're never going to actually reach it. And that most of us are operating at a fraction of our actual potential, 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever it is, because of these constraints, because of these negatives holding us back. And oftentimes, the biggest negative is simply fear. Have you ever remembered a time where you were really, really fearful of something, really scared of something, and scared of going for it? And then somehow, some way, you were ob- able to overcome it? Can you remember how that felt? Can you remember the, the results that you got from that? I can remember the first time I ever wanted to put a video on YouTube. I was scared to death. Or let someone see my code. I was scared to death. But getting rid of that fear or dealing with that fear, overcoming that fear. You know, now, as I talked about earlier, 2.2 million views, you know, all that stuff. Simply overcoming that one negative 
allowed me to achieve much more of my potential. There was nothing different about me the day before versus the day after, potential-wise. Hadn't learned something new. I just decided to go for it. So again, eliminating negatives can be very, very powerful. Now, as a marketer, this is all very valuable intel. Because when you're selling your services, whether that's freelancing or you're trying to get hired at a company or you're selling your apps, your skills, whatever, you can often get further by identifying the real negatives people are experiencing and offering that to eliminate them. You know, I, I think of, you know, some sort of new app or application. It could be very, very powerful for you. It could be much more powerful for you to go around and get an idea of a negative that you think that you can solve and creating some sort of technology to solve that negative than it is trying to think up a list of benefits that this this particular app could give you and positives it could help you gain. Oftentimes, people will react more to the elimination of a negative. So again, as a marketer, This is very, very powerful intel. And most of the time when selling yourself, most situations, you want to have a combination of both, but you really want to start with the negative side of things. You want to start with the pain that they're experiencing. And so for clients, for web design clients, fear is one of the biggest things. You know, they're scared of screwing things up. So you can talk about that. They're, they don't want to waste time, so you could help them eliminate wasted time trying to do it themselves. Frustration and all the headaches of trying to learn everything and all the time and all the effort that they're going to spend trying to learn it all on their own when that's not really what they even enjoy doing. There's also wasted money. These are all negative things in their lives that they really don't want to go through that you can kind of talk about in order to really appeal to them. So my advice when it comes to this kind of thing is don't be afraid to be negative because sometimes being negative can be incredibly positive. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our tech section and we're going to talk about using the golden ratio in your designs, what it is, why you'd want to use it, and how to actually go about doing it. You're listening to The John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Hey, everybody. As you probably know, I constantly harp on using content to help you grow your audience and build your credibility as a web developer. But your web presence is nothing without a great hosting provider. So if you haven't yet, get your website up and running with a fast, reliable, and well-supported web host, Bluehost, for less than six bucks a month. You can check it out and get Bluehost's best price over at johnmorrisonline.com slash bluehost. Welcome back to the John Morris Show and johnmorrisonline.com. In our tech section this week, we're going to talk about using the golden ratio in your designs. Now, you may not have ever heard of it. That's fine. We're going to go through what it is, why you'd want to use it, and how to actually implement it. So, Why would you, in the first place, why would you even care about this? Why would you even want to use this so-called golden ratio in your designs? Well, what this is, is it's a ratio that commonly uh, occurs commonly in nature. 
and when it's used, has been found to be more naturally appealing to viewers. This is actually, in design, this is one of the design principles that you learn, the golden ratio, the rule of thirds, so forth. And again, the point is that because it occurs so commonly in nature, and because without knowing it, a lot of the things that you see around you are based on this ratio, when you see it, it's just naturally comforting. It's something that uh, when you think of harmony and balance, where those feelings come from are actually kind of based on this ratio. So I call them woo-woo words like harmony, balance, and comfort, but those are really what it's after. The, the, the big point of using this in design is, you know, again, it depends on your approach. Sometimes you want to disrupt, right? Sometimes you don't want it to feel harmonious and comfortable. Sometimes you want it to stick out and be almost kind of grating to get people's attention. But in a lot of cases, when you're building a website for someone, you want the visitor who sees it to feel good about it. And this is kind of a natural design principle that helps you to do that. So if you want your clients to see the design and their their site visitors to see it and go, oh yeah, that, that feels good. That Again, we talk about look and feel. Feel is a big part of it. And so when they look at it, you want them to feel good about it. And this is one of the ways that you kind of scientifically do that. And so it does, even though it's a woo-woo, kind of one of those woo-woo things that, you know, seems a little out there. It actually, you, again, you learn this in design and it seems to work. Uh, and when clients view your designs, they'll just be more likely to like it. So you, uh, there, there's some scenarios where this is, they, they say, it's possible that the people that built these things actually use this. So, for example, the Egyptian pyramids or the Greek Parthenon. Now, that's debated a little bit, but you know, when it's been studied, it, it seems to have that ratio in it. And you know, people kind of hypothesize that the people who built it did that on purpose. Now, there are some that we know, like Plato and Euclid and Da Vinci, that made reference specifically to it or made reference to using it specifically in their work. And so it's it's a classical kind of principle that has been around for, you know, centuries that architects and designers and painters and builders of all kinds have used in their work to make it more aesthetically pleasing. Okay, so what is it? What is this golden ratio? Well, I'm going to link to an article called The History of the Golden Ratio on the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 61, so you can read all the in-depth history of it. But uh, what it is, is it's a mathematical ratio that's commonly found in nature and used in classical design theory to create balanced compositions. And so it's roughly equal to 1.618. Now, it's actually a really, really, really long unending number, kind of like pi, but generally speaking, 1.618 is what you're going to use in your designs. So it's also known as the golden mean, the golden section, and the divine proportion. And it's related to something you may have heard called the Fibonacci sequence. And so real quick, the Fibonacci sequence is basically starts at zero, and then you add, you basically 
go zero, one, and then you start adding the last two numbers in the sequence to get the net next number. So you start with zero, then you add one, you get one, you add, you add one and one, you get, or you add zero to one again, you get one, and then you add one and one, you get two, uh, you add two and one, you get three, you add three and two, you get five, you add five and three, you get eight, you add eight and five, you get 13, and on down the line forever. So it's related to that in that if you take any number in that sequence and divide it by the number before it, as you go down, as you kind of go down that Fibonacci sequence, you'll get close, doing that, you'll get closer and closer to the golden ratio. And you can actually try this. You can look up Fibonacci sequence and you can start dividing the numbers and you'll see it'll, you know, one divided by one is one, two divided by one is two. So it bounces on one side of the golden ratio and then on the other. And then if you take the next number and divide it, it kind of bounces on the other side and then back on the other. And it bounces kind of back and forth. And as you go down the sequence, it gets closer and closer to this golden ratio. Okay, so, I mean, that's what it is. Now, talking about using it in your designs, well, probably the biggest place that you're going to use it is in your layouts. And so there's what's called a golden rectangle. And so this is the ratio of the length to the width is is this 1.618, right? So in other words, if one side of a golden rectangle is two feet long, then the other side will be approximately 3.24 feet long, which is two times 1.62. Uh, you could take that out as, as, as many numbers as you wanted, but generally speaking. So you'd have a rectangle that's two feet long and then 3.24 feet wide. That would give you kind of a golden rectangle that's built according to that proportion. If you're looking at grids, actually getting into web design, let's say you have a 960 pixel width grid. Well, you could have the left side be 593 pixels and the right side 367 pixels. And so the ratio, the way that it's built would be according to the golden ratio. So again, a number of different ways that you can use this and layouts and where you put pictures and so forth. Uh, but the idea is, is when you do, it generally be, will be more aesthetically pleasing to the people that view it. Now, you can also use it in topography. And so the relationship between font size, line height, and line width. And uh, I've referenced in the past the personified golden ratio calculator, which helps you calculate the golden ratio based sizes uh, of text and line height and all that that you should use in your designs. But, and again, there's another article I'll link to where he actually goes through and talks about how he came up with that calculator and he explains the whole, it's really worth a it's really worth a read because it goes heavily, heavily into topography. So if, you know, topography is one of those things on your list that you want to master, this is a really good article to read. Again, I'll link to that, johnmorrisonline.com slash 61, the show notes page for this episode. But he essentially has two rules when using the golden ratio with topography or just to topography in general. So as font size, incre font size increases, so must line height. And that's to make sure that you have enough white space between your lines that it's readable. Now, you can guess what the ratio from 
uh, font size to line height and creating creating an aesthetically pleasing amount of white space, you can guess what ratio that's based off, right? So that's the idea there. His second rule is for any font size, as line width increases, so must the line height. Because as the line gets wider, even if the font size and the line height are lined up, it gets harder to read just by being wider. So you have to adjust it based off of how lo- how wide your text is going to be as well. Now again, he explains this in detail in the great detail in the article. I'll link to that. Um, if you want to skip all that and you don't care, you can just use his calculator. I'll link to that as well over on uh, the show notes page. But uh, again, all of this in the topography and the calculator that he uses and so forth is based off of this golden ratio. So there's lots of other places where it comes into play. But when you're looking at your site and you're you're thinking about how you should lay it out and you're looking at what sizes you should make things and the ratio of different elements and their relationship to one another, one of and probably one of the more common principles that you can use is this golden ratio. So that is all about the golden ratio, a little woo-woo stuff for you today. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our freelance section. We're going to talk about begging for money, something I get accused of all the time and why I don't mind that accusation. Also, coming up later, as always, we will be getting into our web development Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. So I just realized something. I'm always harping on how important creating blog content is for getting new clients to your web design business. But what if you don't have a blog and you're not sure how to get one set up? Well, don't worry because I've just created a new tutorial on how to start your blog in less than 15 minutes. So in less than 15 minutes from now, you could have your blog up and running and creating content that's gonna help you attract new clients for your web design business. In order to take this tutorial, you wanna head on over to johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Again, that's johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Head on over and let's get your blog started today. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. In this week's freelance section, I wanna talk about baying for money, and this is something, this comes up because this recently happened again. I had someone who kind of went off on a little rant and accused me of begging for money all the time. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I could almost put this in, in the mindset section, but I want to talk about this related specifically to freelancing because I see this over and over and over and over again from people who, uh, you know, they they just have a bad relationship to money. Web developers don't like to talk about money. You bring money up at all. They immediately start yelling scam and spammer and all these things. And it's not confined to the web development community, but it can be somewhat bad in, in our community. Um, you know, you start talking about, you know, making money with freelancing and so forth. You bring it up in any sort of way and they just kind of go off the rails a little bit. Uh, and again, this happened to me the other day. I had someone (laughs) <laughs> it's just weird to me. It was an interesting little rant that I, I, I honestly, I, I went back through the video to kind of figure out what 
what it was talking about. And it was, I mean, I could, I could be, I think I can be objective about it and understand if I had done something crazy and admit that I don't have a problem doing that, but it really was pretty innocent. I think I spent about a minute of maybe a 20 minute video asking people's opinion on whether I should put a course on Udemy or put it on YouTube. I think that was the thing. And they kind of went off the rails about it. And whenever that happens, I don't want to be condescending in saying this, but I do do kind of chuckle a little bit because most of the time when I get this, I get it from other people and other web developers who themselves are struggling and oftentimes can't figure out why. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue. Your relationship to money and asking for it is a clue. Because it doesn't matter what it is, but especially when it comes to asking to asking for what you're worth, asking to get paid, you need to be assertive. I don't want to use the term aggressive because I don't think you need to be aggressive necessarily, but you need to be assertive. Nobody's just going to give you what you deserve. I used to have this mindset too. I used to actually say this in interviews. They'd ask me, what should I be paid? And I would say, well, you know, I know every business is like, this answer kills me. I would say, you know, I know every business is different and the value of an employee to any business is relative. You know, I know what I think I'm worth, but I'm, you know, in the confines of what your business does, it may not translate. I just want to make sure that I'm paid what I'm worth to your company. So, you know, the 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 key to me is that you be honest and you tell me, you know, you you offer me what you really think I'm worth now and if I become more valuable, that I shouldn't have to ask for a raise. And you should increase my pay based off what you think I'm worth. That would be my answer. And I still like that answer. It makes me feel good and warm and fuzzy. But it never happens. Never. It's not their job to make sure you get paid what you deserve. It isn't. I know that's like blasphemy to say these days. But it's not. It's not. Now, it's their job to try and make sure and keep you happy. And if that's a part of it. Now, it's their job to to try and keep you happy, but I think most employees, and again, this is myself included, overestimate their value in a business sense. Again, blasphemy, I know, but every position, every job has a market value, and it is what it is. And I think oftentimes we overestimate what the value that we have to a company. So, you know, it's not their job to look out for you necessarily. It's your job to look out for you. And even if you think it's their job, guess what? It's It doesn't happen. So regardless, you have to go get it. And you can't be afraid. Here's Here's the big thing I want to get to here. You can't be afraid to look like you're begging for money 
or any other judgment that someone might throw at you, you can't be afraid to look like that in order to be assertive and go get what you think you deserve. You can't let that stop you from asserting yourself. Because that's only one of the many what others might think or say fears that you're going to encounter. And those fears will be the biggest hurdles in your career. I mean, I talk to people almost every day. And the things that are holding them back, the things that they talk about, are fears. They're limited uh, by those fears and they say, I just need to go for it. I just need to do it. I just need to, what they're saying is, is I just need to get over this fear. And people are scared to death of looking greedy, of looking like they're begging for money. And having an irrational relationship to money and selling and, oh, anybody who sells anything is an evil scammer. Anybody who tries to be persuasive is is a spammer. Having that kind of irrational relationship to money makes it all worse. You know, Steve Jobs, a lot of a lot of people, you could insert any name there, right? Steve Jobs, even Mark Zuckerberg, whoever, whoever your tech hero is. But I'll stick with Steve Jobs, even though he's not my tech hero. He's a lot of people's. He's often known for being a great inventor. That's what when people talk about him, that's what they talk about. But you know what? Every single one of those things that he invented, he spent it a he spent a great deal of time selling. And he did it well. He was good at selling his stuff. In fact, if you ask some Android people, they would tell you that he oversold it. But regardless, he was good at it. And he sold the things that he invented and wasn't ashamed of it. See, if you believe in what you're selling, then you're going to sell it hard. You're not going to be afraid to look like you're begging for money. Or you're not going to be afraid to look like you're trying to persuade somebody. Because you'll actually believe that the by the person that you're trying to sell, consuming it or, or, or buying it, it's going to make their life better. See, if you actually believe that what you're giving people will make their lives better, you will sell it hard because you want to make their lives better. So when I see people who are judgmental about how I or anyone else sells things, I know that most of the time that breaks, breaks down to them not being confident in their own skills in selling themselves. And if that's you, that's the first thing that you have to fix. You have to believe in what you're doing and what you're selling. And when you do, then you'll have no problem being aggressive or assertive with it. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our weekly Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show? johnmorrisonline.com. A quick question for you. Are you running a WordPress site? If so, then I want to recommend to you the premium WordPress hosting service, WP 
Engine. Now, what makes WP Engine different than a lot of web hosts out there is that it's designed specifically for WordPress with advanced caching and security implementation to keep your WordPress website up and running and running as fast as possible. And we all know how important speed is on the web these days. So if you're running WordPress and you don't have WP Engine yet, be sure to give it a look. You can get their best price at johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine, all one word. Check them out. You're going to love your WordPress hosting. Hi, welcome back to the John Morris Show and johnmorrisonline.com. We're going to dive into our weekly Q&A. So our first question comes from Ronald on YouTube. And again, this is kind of a statement that strikes me as a question. So what has so far most discouraged me from writing proposals is that I can never seem to find the full description of the project. Instead, all I see on the site is a very brief and non-specific description of the project and then a bid button. What would be useful is a tutorial on how to get the project specifications without having to place a bid. It just seems to me that to bid on a project before knowing the specifics is dishonest and unprofessional. Now, I actually agree with most of this. The thing I would question is most of the sites that I've been on, you can submit a proposal without a bid. And I use that functionality. That's probably the functionality I use most on a freelance site when I use them is the ability to send a proposal back without a bid. And basically what I do is I ask clarifying questions. And so that's, I mean, that's the answer to this because you're right. You get, you get a ton of projects on there that are a sentence or two, some even just a few words. Now, most of the time, those projects, I'll just, I won't even, I won't even bother with, I mean, why bother? There's so many other projects on there that do have full sub descriptions. Why even mess with it? But if you are going to mess with it, then you, you know, respond and ask a clarifying question or a number of clarifying questions so that you can get the information that you need. Uh, and so again, that's the simple answer to it. A don't bother with it in the first place or B uh, write back and ask clarifying questions so you can get the information you need. Now, if you don't, if the site that you're on happens to not have that functionality, then just, Put in a number and write in your proposal. And, you know, if you want to get attention, probably make it a low number. But uh, put in your proposal. You know, I'm putting in this number, but, you know, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of information that I need to really give you a bid. Or put in a high number. That way, if they... They accept it. You're not stuck with a, a, a low, a low ball number. But however you want to handle that, just put in a number and then say, hey, this this bid is really, you know, not going to be that accurate because I don't have a bunch of new inf- enough information. And then ask your clarifying questions. So that would be the way that I would handle that. Again, it kind of depends on the site that you're on. But the ones that I've been on, you can, again, respond without giving a bid. So that's what I would do. All right. Next one comes from Siddhartha Gupta on YouTube. Hopefully I pronounced that properly. And he asks, who provides a good email SMTP service? 
So I'm going to give you one that I've never used, but I've heard a lot heard about, and then one that I have used uh, a little bit. So the first one is SendGrid, and it's just one that I've never used it, but I've seen one referenced quite a bit. It seems to be the one when I asked about this that people would reference and so forth. Um, and so that's one of them. I've you know I've looked at the website and so forth, and it's it all seems pretty legit. It seems like it'd be a pretty good service. You know, you have to look at the pricing and all that and see if it matches up for you. But SendGrid is one. The other one I have used a little bit is called Mandrill. And I used this on a client site. They wanted to, um, it was a WordPress site, but they just wanted to have all of those emails be going through an SMTP service instead of off of their server, primarily for deliverability. And Mandrill is the one that's created by MailChimp. And so the idea, the hope is that because... MailChimp is a kind of a autoresponder email service that's worked hard to get good deliverability. Then their, you know, SMTP service will have that same good deliverability. So I've used that one a little bit. Uh, it had a WordPress plugin. It was really really easy to set up, and it, you know, it worked. I didn't really ever have any issues with it. Um, you know, there was some stuff in there that we didn't use, but with MailChimp. Um, they also use MailChimp for their, their, um, mailing list provider, but there was some stuff in there about templates. You know, I haven't used MailChimp extensively, so anybody who's used it probably knows exactly what I'm talking about, but there was some templating stuff in there, which I thought was pretty cool, but we never really used, but that's the one that I've used. Um, I think they have a certain number of email. You can actually set up and there's a certain number of emails that you can send, uh, for free each month. I don't think you get access to the templates and all the, some of the advanced features, but um, again, that's a that's a pretty good one that I've used. So those are the two that I, I would say. All right, last question then for this week is from Toby on Twitter and asked me, and I, I responded to him over there, but I kind of want to cover this because it's something I do get a decent amount of, and it's where did you start with the basics? I'm just starting out and growing crazy with where to start. Now, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you know what I'm going to say, which is that where you should start isn't with what skills should I learn. It's you should start with finding your niche. What do I love to do? What do I, what am I good at? And what will other people pay me for? That's where you should start. Now, obviously you can't do that without learning some skills, right? I always advise people who are just starting out for that first really probably year, six months, year, maybe even two years. It just depends um, on how long it takes you. But that first six months to a year, you should really just dabble. You shouldn't really go in too hard on any one thing. Now, I'm talking about someone who's just starting learning how to code. If you've been doing it for a while, then you know maybe you don't need to dabble as much. Um, although if you're struggling and don't think you're in an area that you you know, that you really love doing, then maybe it's worth dabbling for a little bit. But you should just dabble for that first part, you know, try a bunch of different things and kind of try to figure out what you have a knack for, what you really enjoy doing. And really anything tech-wise, unless you get into something super obscure, there's going to be a market for. So you should know that you're already in a market that people will pay money for. So that means you can dabble and you have some freedom to kind of bounce around and figure out and and see what you like to do uh, and, you know, what you kind of tend to have a natural talent for. Now, when you're doing that, 
uh, I would recommend that that dabbling kind of be heavily in the the basics of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and some PHP and MySQL in there. So you really, I mean, no matter what you do in the web, you're going to have to learn HTML and CSS. There's just really no way around that. So you should just go ahead and learn those. And then the other ones, JavaScript, MySQL, uh, and PHP, most of the time you're going to be at some point interacting with HTML and CSS based on those. And so you can then kind of start to dabble and figure out what you want. And then as you've done that, you can maybe look in some different server-side scripts. Maybe it doesn't have to be PHP. Maybe you can look into some you know, different types of database database stuff that's out there. Maybe you could look into some of the new stuff like Node.js and Angular. But starting out, I'd learn HTML, CSS, and I would dabble as much as possible until you kind of figure out your niche. Once you have your niche, then you know, and what I mean by ditch is what's the end result you're going to deliver to people? I built membership sites. I don't talk that that's not languages that that's across languages i build membership sites that's the end result what's your end result going to be is it going to be sales pages or opt-in forms or is it going to be long complicated surveys or what is it what is your end result going to be is it going to be websites is it going to be blogs what is the end result once you know that then you know exactly what skills you need to learn then you can hone in on this is the the skill set I need in order to deliver this. Then you can focus in on learning that. You're going to progress a lot faster if you do it that way than just trying to learn everything tech that's out there because there's so much stuff out there, a big chunk of which will not ultimately apply to the end result you land on that you're going to deliver to people. So, again, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard this probably a hundred times before, but that's the answer. That's what you do. So I'm going to just keep repeating that. All right. That'll do it for this week's Q and a, and it'll also do it for this week's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe over on you or on uh, iTunes. If you wouldn't mind leaving me a review, I'd appreciate that. Uh, all of that stuff's helps the, the show get discovered better over there. Uh, can bring new people into the fold. So I'd greatly appreciate that. If you're on Android, johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud. Hopefully Google Play comes out with its uh, podcasting integration here soon, and you'll be able to, we're all set up there, you'll be able to subscribe there uh, if you'd like, uh, but that's not out yet, so we'll just have to wait and see. And as always on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. If you have a comment or suggestion or question that you'd like to ask for the show, you can shoot me an email at john at johnmorrisonline.com. The only caveat I have with that is just make sure it's something that I can answer in this format. You know, if you send me a code snippet, I'm not going to be able to answer that in this format. So uh, try to keep it to that that kind of thing. All right. also, if you wouldn't mind, if you there's any people or communities that you think would benefit from this episode, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with them, I would greatly appreciate that. And if you haven't yet, I mean, if you haven't subscribed, obviously be sure and do that. So that's a no-brainer, right? All right, that'll wrap it up for this week's episode. Talk to you next week. Hey, everybody. Here's a quick one for you. We all know how important creating blog content is to attract 
new clients to your web design business. But oftentimes, those first few members of your audience can be difficult to get. Well, I want to help try and get you over that hump and help you get your first few followers. Now, I have a, an audience of over 20,000 YouTube subscribers, email list subscribers, and roughly 30,000 visitors to my website each and every month. And I'd have no problem promoting your website to that audience and helping you get those first few visitors. Now, to get the details on this, you'll have to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity, but you'll need to do it before you actually start your blog. So head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity, and let me help you get those first few visitors and those first few members of your audience.